locked off his door, if that's right, Paul. It's good to be here with you all again. Um, if you were here a fortnight ago, you would have known that I uh, preached from 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, looking at, at sort of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, or specifically the inerrancy of, of the Bible. Um, the fact that it is without error, that it is wholly truthful, without defect, or without corruption. And so this week we'll be looking at sort of a part two, if you want to call it that, looking at Psalm 19. Um, so if you would like to turn there now with me, uh, then your pew Bibles or uh, the Bibles you have with you to Psalm 19. In this particular psalm, I was only introduced to um, maybe a matter of a month ago, a month and a half ago, um, and I felt rather ashamed that I had not read it earlier. Um, I very quickly fell in love with this psalm and fell in love with, uh, it's David who particularly writes this one, but what David said here and what God communicated through David about, well, what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, and the particular topic uh, that this, this sermon is entitled after is uh, the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, which is something we looked at in part towards the tail end of my sermon a fortnight ago, but this is where we will now extrapolate upon that uh, and look at it in a greater depth and a greater um, encompassment. And so this particular, um, this particular psalm we have here, what, what happens in it is there's what's called a, three, a threefold sort of composition, uh, a threefold methodology. And all that sort of simply means when you boil it down is, is, is how David describes what scripture is, what scripture does, and what it's useful for. And you might remember if you were here a fortnight ago, if you had heard the, the sermon podcast, that that is exactly what Paul does in Second Timothy chapter 3. Um, amongst other things, he describes what scripture is, uh, what, what's, what its sort of nature is, what its then qualities are, and what its usefulness is. Okay? And what David does here in the latter half of this psalm is the exact same thing. Okay, this is potentially where Paul modelled that concept of. Okay? But what he does in the first half is interesting. He's describing overall how God has revealed himself uh, to people in general. Okay? And he's done it in two ways primarily, on two different levels. One is through his creation, as we will read about, and the second is through his scripture, through the Bible, his word. And so in turn there is a revelation that is without words and then a revelation in words. Okay, and so what I might do is I might read through the entire psalm in its entirety uh, so that we can sort of get an overall picture and then we'll jump back to verse 1 and we'll go through it systematically from there. So if you would like to read along with me in, in verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let, me not, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of a great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so even in that brief reading, there might have been certain things that brought a smile to your face or things that you were silently amening to. Um, and you can see why it's a very, very beautiful and a very powerful psalm. And so now if you want to backtrack to verse 1, what I'll do is I'll firstly, uh, on the briefer side, discuss verses 1 to 6, the, the general revelation, what theologians call general revelation, which is how God has revealed himself through creation. And then move on to what will take up the majority of, of this sermon, which will be the special or specific revelation, or in other words, his word, the Bible. Okay, so if you would jump back to verse 1 with me. We see here that he begins with, The heavens declare the glory of, the, of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And you see that he, he's beginning with what creation is, what it actually reveals. It reveals the glory of God, the heavens. This, this, this language here is the language that's used in Genesis 1 in describing the heavens. It's not describing the, the dwelling place of God per se. It's describing what we might refer to as outer space or the universe. Okay, it's the heavens. It's the same terminology. The heavens declare the glory of God. We may think sometimes, why, if we are here on this rock called planet Earth, are there just this abundance of planets and galaxies and solar clusters amounting to potentially a billion galaxies, each with a billion stars, a hundred billion galaxies, a hundred billion stars in them? It's a lot. Why? to testify to the glory of God, to testify to his glory. God created this unimaginably vast, unimaginably detailed, and unimaginably complex universe to display the glory of his handiwork and to display his power and his majesty. Many of you may have looked up into the night sky, which is a lot more visible, particularly in the mountains, than it is, say, in the city, uh, or for those who live out at, at Harley or Lithgow, you would have a much better idea of what I'm talking about. You look up into the sky and, and you see, well for us you would see the rest of the stars uh, in our own galaxy and you just wonder in awe at, you know, at the wonder and the majesty and the power and the glory of God. And that is a right reaction. The heavens were created for the telling of time and of seasons but also to testify to his glory. And this is the starting point that David makes. That that is the very reason for creation is to testify to God's glory. We then see moving on in verse 2. Day to day he pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This glory that uh, of the glory of the heavens that David's touching upon here, he's not necessarily talking about something small. He didn't elect, as you can see, to talk about uh, perhaps the peacefulness of the Sea of Galilee. Some of, some of you here have been to the Sea of Galilee before, and you can testify to, to its beauty. 
But he didn't talk about something like that because for those of us who have never been to the Sea of Galilee, we don't know its peacefulness or its glory. But he testifies rather to, what, to the macro creation, as I stated, to the heavens, something that cannot be missed by any person on the planet Earth. This can be seen by everyone. Everyone can see the glory of God manifest through his handiwork and through his creation. That is why he says, day to day he pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And then particularly, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Everyone can see the manifest glory of God through creation. And now why, why is that particular point important? Well, that's important because of this. Creation, or the heavens in particular, even our own earth, but creation in general, is sufficient to reveal the knowledge of God to all people. Paul extrapolates upon this in Romans 1, if you're familiar with it. He says that the attributes of God, namely his character and qualities, are manifest or are made known through that which is made. And he then goes on to conclude, so that they are without excuse. So that people of all time, in all places, are without excuse as to their lack of following God to their rebellion and rejection of him. None are without excuse. He is saying that everyone can see it has been made plain and simple to all people that he is God and that there is a creator. I have some people who you know, I frequently engage with at Theological College who would profess themselves to be atheistic or agnostic. Atheistic simply meaning without a theist, God, Without God, they deny the existence of God or they're on the slightly less gutsy position, agnosticism, which is just people who don't want to make a decision. I, I, I hear these people and they say, oh, I'm an agnostic. <coughs> I go, really? So you're what the Latin equivalent is, an ignoramus. Agnostic literally means without knowledge. The Latin phrase, the, the exact translation is ignoramus. I don't often have people come to me and say, well, I... Personally, I'm an ignoramus. I'm not necessarily mean to poke fun, but at the same time I really am because the fool has said in his heart there is no God. To, to, and we'll look at it. So David then goes on to talk about the sun. He then says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man running its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and it's circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from his heat. He, he appeals to the one thing which every single person is directly influenced and, and reliant upon in a sense. And he's not doing it in the deified way that pagan culture would do it by making the sun a god. But he's appealing to, at least from our vantage point, what is the, the source of heat and the source of sustenance physically of our planet. And he appeals to it and he describes it as a strong man who runs its course with joy, just as God is a strong man. And the sun testifies to his glory. You know, we, we, we sit here and if we're out in the bright sun, we can't look up at it. We have to cover our eyes. But we don't realise how many millions of millions and millions and millions and millions of kilometres away we are from the thing. And that's just that's, that's the power of the sun. But what's an interesting point here is that he says that it runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. He's not describing 
say, the rising and the setting of the sun. He, he talked about that earlier. He talked about with day to day and night to night. So he's not talking about that. And this is actually a really mind-boggling point. Right? But he's saying that the sun runs a course. It runs a circuit. And which, if any, if any of you happen here who have done sort of tertiary science or, or any other sort of form of science, you may or may not know that the sun has an orbit. It has a course. We, of course, are orbiting the sun, but the sun and our solar system is orbiting our galaxy, the Milky Way. Our sun is hurtling through space at 800,000 kilometres an hour and dragging us with it. This is why it is foolishness to say that there is no God. To say, to, to look at the heavens and to look at the stars and just the unimaginable, literally the unimaginable vastness of our universe, its specificity, the fact that if we were one degree closer to the sun, we would be too hot and heat up and life would not be sustainable. If we were two degree away from it, we would freeze and there would be no life. Such peculiarity, such detail. To think that there is no God is, is just foolishness. It is not even rational. It is not even rational. And God has made himself manifest and obvious and known to all people. On the day of judgment, there will be no excuse. There will be no well, I didn't receive enough evidence from those Christians as to your existence through philosophical debate and dialogue. There will be no excuse like that. At the same time, there won't be any excuse for the pagan living in the middle of wherever who never had a Bible come to him. Why? Because creation is sufficient to condemn and to judge. I'll finish on this point in this particular part, but I sometimes get asked, and I used to think erroneously about this issue as well, but I sometimes get asked, what happens to the innocent man in Africa who never hears the gospel? So have you, any of you ever thought of that question particularly? I used to think about that question a lot and I can never answer it. Okay? The first faulty premise is that there is an innocent, as to whether there is an innocent man in Africa. There is no innocent man in Africa. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. God has been made known to every single person in Africa South America, North America, Australia, I don't care really where else, to the penguins in, South, in, in Antarctica for all I care. He's been made known to them. And so the glory of God is put on full and utter display for all people of all time through his creation. That is the general revelation. It is sufficient to damn and to condemn and to judge. But thankfully, as David then goes on to describe, there is a revelation, a specific or special revelation which is then sufficient to save. Sufficient to save. And that is what we now see looking through from verses 7 onwards. And this is where I'm going to sort of uh, exegete these particular verses in a bit more detail and sort of show the methodology of David, the, the three-part methodology of how he describes what the scripture is. He uses six parallel statements, which is a very Hebraic thing to do. They use parallelisms to sort of say the same thing in different ways. Okay, and one common thing which I want to point out first of all is in these six parallel statements, there is one commonality of the Lord, 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 of the Lord. Why? Because David is trying to make it very clear to you and I and to anybody else who reads this psalm that scripture 
is authored and sourced of the Lord. It is of the Lord. Of course, it is worked through and, and was written by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved along by the Spirit, as, 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 as Peter describes in Second Peter 1. But it is of God. It is of the Lord. That is the source and the ultimate author. So let's keep that in mind as we now go through what we have here in these next verses. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We see, first of all, that Scripture is law. The word Torah is used here. You might have heard the word Torah, um, if you're especially speaking to a, a, a Jew. Uh, it's, a, it's the generic, all-encompassing sort of term for divine instructions. It's divine instructions. It is the, the I don't want to say the manual because it sort of cuts it very short, but it is the outline and it is the description of everything about who God is and what he has done and what he will do. And more importantly, and on top of that, it is divine instruction and his expectations and demands of man. We see, obviously, you'd be familiar in, in, in Exodus, the giving of the, of the Ten Commandments, the, the Decalogue, and then if, if you've ever have the, had the patience to read through all of Leviticus, the, 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 the other remaining 613 Jewish civil and customary laws, of course, many of which are, 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 like I said, customary and civil to the theocracy of Israel, but nonetheless there are a number of commands and plenty of commands uh, with which are applied to all people of all times. And so that is what Scripture is law. It is Torah. It is divine instruction for how man is obligated to live. A thing which we know full well we do not do. A thing which we know we don't live up to. We do not live up to the law of God. We then see that Scripture is perfect. And it says the law of the Lord is perfect. James calls it the perfect law. He, he's also extrapolating upon this in his epistle. He's reiterating, he's touching back on this, on this concept of, of the law being perfect. And, and this is an important point, is that what David's doing here is he's not saying perfect as opposed to imperfect, which might be our, our sort of Western conclusion. The, the Hebrew thought behind perfection is, is, a, is, a, is a notion of completeness versus incomplete. It, it's perfect as opposed to incomplete. Okay? The Hebrew word tomim is, is used here and it conveys comprehensiveness. Comprehensiveness and completeness. The scripture is comprehensive to do what it says it does. And God is very clearly saying here that his law, his divine instruction, his scriptures are comprehensive to achieve what they set out to achieve, which is, of course, as, as, as we would know, it is comprehensive to tell us who God is and who we are. It is comprehensive to tell us our state of fallenness and the sinful brokenness of this world. And it is also comprehensive to then tell us the way of salvation, the, the way in which salvation and forgiveness of sins has been wrought by the Lamb that was slain on the cross. That is what it is comprehensive altogether to do. Okay? It is comprehensive and it is completely and utterly sufficient to do that. There is nothing outside of Scripture necessary to save people. Our salvation and the knowledge of the Gospel comes from the Word. It doesn't come from anywhere else. 
You may hear it from a preacher. You may hear it from a family member. You may hear it, I don't know, in a colouring kid's book. I don't know. But ultimately, its source is what? It is scripture. And so it is complete and it is sufficient to do that. We then see finally that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Scripture revives the soul. Okay, it revives the soul. And now, the Hebrew word here, nefesh, can be, or it is in fact, translated in, in roughly 21 different English words. They're not contradictory, they're just all synonymous with each other. So, for example, uh, obviously he's saying he revived the soul. The word nefesh is soul we're picking up on here. Um, for example, it can be translated soul, person, self, mind, heart. But altogether it's talking about the inner person as opposed to the material body. Okay? It is sufficient, the word of God is, to revive your inner person. A, a word which I think, an English word which I think properly encapsulates it or encapsulates it a bit better is transforms. You can translate in effect transforms. Even so much as to say totally transforms. And what is that touching upon? That is saying that the scripture, as I just mentioned, is enough to save us, but it is able to utterly transform us. So we have been justified by grace through faith. We have been made right with God. But then the other part of that is that we are then treated as though we are right with him. We no longer linger under condemnation that the law brings. The law is a schoolmaster that was created to condemn people and to point to their need for the Saviour, the Son, Jesus Christ. But now scripture is utterly able to save us as well as sanctify us, as well as grow us in Christian holiness and righteousness and love, joy, patience, peace, all these other attributes and gifts. It is utterly sufficient to do that. You, you, you don't need to find uh, the things that you need for Christian living in life coaches and these so-called gurus who come to tell you what's the best way to run your 21st century Western capitalistic life. The scripture is sufficient to do that. If you want to know how to attain more joy, which is actually something we'll talk about, if you want to know how to be more loving, how to be more Christ-like, how to model him in this world, how to grow in holiness and righteousness and how to have victory and defeat and mortify the deeds of the flesh, the scripture is sufficient to tell you that. It is utterly sufficient to revive or transform your soul, your being, who you are. In the second part of, of verse 7 we see that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We see that scripture is a testimony. It is a testimony. It is a divine witness Scripture is God's own testimony as to who he is and what he has done and what he will do. What he will do, that's another important point. We see there's also a testimony of what he requires of us and what we deserve as sinful people, but at the same time, what we are instead given. It is a testimony to that truth. We then see that this testimony is sure. Scripture um, as I talked about a, a fortnight ago, it is absolutely inerrant. The word inerrant is simply meaning without error. It is sure. This is God's certified guarantee that his word is true. It is sure. You can bank on it. 
all right? This testimony is sure. You can rely upon it. You don't need to sit there and think, is that what God really said? Did, 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 did Jonah really get swallowed by a big fish? Was there really a, a, a flood that spared Noah and his family but not another person on the planet? Did Christ really die on the cross for my sins? Did he really rise from the dead? And the answer is yes to the uttermost. Why? Because scripture is inerrant. He's a central tenet of the Christian faith if I need to remind you. As a Christian, you are obligated and you must, and for many of us, obviously it comes naturally, right? But we must believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is without error, that it is utterly sure. Because it is a testimony of who God is and what he has done and what he will do. And if we can't rely upon it, if we can't have complete and utter confidence on it or with it, then we might as well throw it out. But thankfully, it is sure. It is sure. And what does it do? What is this testimony that is sure? What does it do? It makes wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. Now, why is that? And I've just lost my place in my notes. There we go. It makes wise the simple. Uh, the concept here, or the, the, the word that's used for simple, is the root word for an open door. An open door, which you might find interesting. But the reason why is, I hear many people sort of say, non Christian, and unfortunately sometimes Christian people say, oh, I'm very open minded to things. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, open to, I'm open to what other religions sort of say. And, and my, my, my automatic response, which I have to then restrain myself from saying, is, Close it. <laughs> Close it. If you, if you think that you have an open mind to every other idea under the sun or every single philosophical or religious notion that happens to be out there, please close it. Please close it before you destroy yourself. I'm really serious about that. Close it. There's nothing uh, elegant or sophisticated about being open-minded. You're a fool if you're open-minded. You have no discernment if you're open-minded. Why? Because you're an open door, as the root word there describes with the word simple. You're simple. You're open-minded. You just let things in and let things out, and, and there's no discernment. There's no filter that lets in truth but then keeps out the, the worldly things and the untrue things. And so what is Scripture able to do what is it sufficient to do it is sufficient to make wise the simple in the beginning of of the entire psalmody the very first verse that david writes in psalm 1 reads like this and this is how he is telling us to close our mind this is what we must do to uh, become wise or this is how scripture makes wise the simple He starts like this, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How do you become wise? How do you stop yourself from being infiltrated and perverted by untrue things, by worldly, ungodly things? You don't remain in their counsel. You won't benefit, I can tell you now, even school kids, Going on to university, you won't benefit 
from going into a university lecture where the Bible and God and Christianity at large is mocked and spat upon and, and ridiculed. There will be no benefit in that for you. Even if we bring it to a greater scope such as sort of general entertainment and television and, and media and all this kind of stuff, there's, there's no benefit for us as Christians, especially if we're thinking about our own sanctification, our own growing in Christian faith. There's no benefit for remaining in the council of TV shows and movies and all this kind of stuff, songs that just mock God, that just talk ad infinitum about sexual perversion, about murder, about rape, about, about materialism and about the love of money, mammon and all this kind of stuff. Don't put yourself in front of it. Video games, it doesn't matter what, I'm just, there's a litany of things. Because that's the state of our world. I'm not talking about keep yourself in your room with your bubble wrap on and never go out lest you get like ungodliness like in your nose because it's in the air or something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being in the company, as he describes here, of the wicked. He's talking about being influenced and being simple, being an open door to every ungodly and, un- and wicked and, and untrue practice, thought, notion and everything else that happens to exist out there. Close your mind. Use discernment. Use discernment. And if you want to learn how to use discernment at a greater length, guess where you can go? To the scriptures. Because the scriptures will teach you how to learn and exercise discernment. Moving on to verse 8, the beginning there, he says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We see that scripture is precepts. Now, precepts uh, simply meaning doctrine. It's looking at, at the fact that scripture is doctrines. Doctrines. Doctrines isn't this high and lofty notion which um, boring people like myself go down to theological college to inundate ourselves with. Doctrines is simply a teaching or, or a, a truth taught. We all believe, everyone, every single person in here, if you're a Christian, you are doctrinal. You're doctrinal because you believe taught truths. You believe teachings. You believe truths. Okay? And that's what doctrine is. That's what precepts are. And so we see that, that Scripture isn't this uh, vain and removed philosophical postulus that we then sort of take a hold on once we existentially experience it, as most pagan religions would generally believe. Scripture, the words... The graphe, the words themselves, the text itself, it is doctrine and it is precepts, it is truth. Okay? And these precepts are right. They are right. And even again, this, this concept, from a Hebrew perspective that David's writing from, it's not necessarily right versus wrong. It is in a sense, but what it's more touching upon is that these precepts are the right path. Okay? They are the right path. In Psalm 19, which is uh, the longest uh, chapter in your Bible, it's 176 verses. Um, feel free to go through it yourself. Um, but Psalm 19, or really rather, sorry, Psalm, 9, so Psalm 19 is the, the condensed version of Psalm 119. So David was very kind in, for those who know that it's hard to get through 176 verses in one sitting, he decided to do a revised or condensed version for us, which was very kind of him. 
Um, but in Psalm 119, here's how he extrapolates upon this concept. He says, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, a phrase which many of you may be familiar with. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Of course. And at the same time as it being the light unto the feet and the lamp unto the path, it is also the path itself. It's everything. It is the path itself. The scripture is the right way of living for all people. And then once we are saved and born again, it is the right way of living for the Christian. So we see that it is the true and the right path. It is the way in which we should go. What is these precepts that are right? What are they able to do? They are able to rejoice the heart. They rejoice the heart. True joy comes from knowing God's word. Christ himself is the very definition of joy, as is God at large. He is the definition of joy. But how do we know about God? How do we know that he is joy? And how do we then experience the joy that then comes with being in covenant relationship with him? That is through the word. It is through the word that we hear the gospel and is thereby through the word that we are then saved by his grace and through the working and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it is through his word that we receive joy. After Jeremiah was rejected by the people of Israel, after they had shunned him and mocked him and put him in a hole and all this kind of stuff, imprisoned him, after they had utterly rejected him and thereby rejected the word of the Lord. He then wrote this in chapter 15 and verse 16. He rejoiced. This is what he says. He says, Your words are found and I ate them, and your words became to me the joy and delight of my heart. The joy and delight of my heart. That is what the word was to Jeremiah, who was colloquially known as the weeping prophet because the story of his life is one of utter loneliness and utter depression because he was the only man in an entire nation who had the intestinal fortitude to follow God. And this is why true joy comes from, as Paul describes in Colossians 3.16, from letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is why the, script, you know, the, the practice of uh, remembering scripture or scripture memorization is a really handy habit to get into. Because when you're memorising a scripture, it doesn't matter what it is, but when you're memorising a scripture, even if you took the most basic one that every single evangelical on the planet knows, which is John 3.16, okay? even if you took that, that alone brings joy. It brings joy. Utter joy. And when you continue to expand your memory of scripture and your memory bank, if you want to call it that, of different verses and passages. And for some people who have way too many times on their hands entire books. That brings joy. Why? Because they know the word of the Lord and that word is seared into their heart and into their mind. And it brings joy. It brings joy and it rejoices the heart. And the important point here is where are you getting your joy? What rejoices your heart? And it's an important question which I think we as Christians and myself included need to continually ask ourselves, especially for people younger like me. Are we getting our joy and 
is our heart rejoiced by all you know everything that our world wants to try and feed us and sell us as people born around the turn of the millennium? Do we find our joy and and our happiness and our rejoicing in uh, just engrossing ourselves in that next TV series that's got to come out, or or the next PS4 game, or the next video game of whatever description, or is it, you know, is is our rejoicing felt in how many likes and follows and shares and all that jazz we have on Facebook and Instagram and whatever other long list of social media? Is it found in even ourselves, in making ourselves look good, in self-promotion and self-validification you know, and and self-enticement is it found in sensual joy we need to really evaluate ourselves continually as Christians for our, for our own good as to what is our source of joy is it God and his word or is it everything else but God and his world maybe continue to think about that point Moving on then to the second half of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We see that scripture is commandments. They are commandments. They are divine demands by God onto man. They are divine demands. They are the demands that God has for people. When God says that you shall have no other gods before me, notice that we don't colloquially know that that area of scripture in Exodus 20 as the 10 nice suggestions the 10 things that if you do them right it could pan out well for you they are the 10 commandments the commandments God demands that all people everywhere at all times live a sinlessly perfect life and he has every right to do that because he is holy he is altogether otherly he is perfectly just and righteous He has no sin in him, nor can he sin. And he has every right to demand that his creations perform the same way. That is why we are to have no other idols. That is why we are to honour our mother and father. That is why we are not to murder, steal, lie, commit adultery, nor covet. And the list goes on and on and on. And of course, as I said, that leaves us in a bad scenario. That's what the law does. The law condemns. That is the only reason it was created. It was created to A, magnify God's character and attributes and at the same time to condemn sinful man who does not meet up to that. And as I will go on to talk about, there is of course resolution to that. But let us not be under the illusion that we are good people. Daniel Thomas is not a good person. If you could take the thoughts of my mind and record them and play them on the screen to my side before you and before the rest of this church, none of you would ever see me again. And of course I can gesture about that. But at the same time, it's a very, very, very scary proposition. There is none good, no, not one. Why? Because the law condemns because God and his word, they are commandments. But at the same time, this word of God, these commands, they are pure. They are pure. Now what does that mean? That means that they are transparent. They are lucid. They're, they're clear. Uh, what, what myself and other 
theologians would refer to as this is the perspicuity of Scripture. It is the fact that they are clear, they are, they are understandable, they are plain and they are simple. The gospel can be understood and believed by a five-year-old. I've seen it happen. It can absolutely happen. And then that's the beautiful oxymoron, the beautiful dichotomy of it, in that it is so simple a five-year-old can believe it and know it and understand it, but at the same time, theologians and big and bigwigs with too much time on their hands can study it till the day we do, you know the day we grow old and die. It is so vast and so complex, but at the same time, it is pure. It is without blemish. It's clear. It's like clear glass and I know the young people talk about you know know what I'm talking about because you obviously wash your parents cars at least once a week <laughs> and so you know what the clean glass looks like it is clear it is understandable so we don't have excuse to shy away from it but at the same time we can have confidence that it is understandable and it is clear is pure and what does this purity do it enlightens the eyes it enlightens the eyes we see that not only for ourselves but for the world around us it shows us who we are it enlightens our eyes it makes things known to us as i sort of touched upon earlier god has been made known through his creation but at the same time who he is what he's done his redemptive work that also enlightens our eyes the word is living and it is active and the Holy Spirit works through the word in order to enlighten the eyes, to make us understand. I, when I'm preaching to you here and to any other preacher who's up in this pulpit preaching to you, their number one prayer, I can guarantee you this, is that the noise is not just traversing this chasm between my mouth and your ears and then having nothing happen. We pray as, as Pastor Graham prayed that our hearts and minds would be receptive. That is what it does. The scripture enlightens our eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is clean. Now this is, a, this is an odd one. It's the fear of the Lord? The fear. Why is scripture referred to as fear? Well, the word fear is synonymous in the Hebrew with worship. Why? Because everything we do as Christians begins in a place of worship towards God. To fear him is to worship him. And why is that? It is because to fear him is to have an awe and a reverence for him. It's to fear him. It's to have an awe and an utter reverence. And so why is fear necessary? It's because fear is the beginning of all wisdom, as Proverbs 9.10 clearly states and, and profoundly states. The beginning of all wisdom, you want wisdom, fear God. You want wisdom in life, you want to be able to discern things properly, you want to be able to follow him adequately and you want to, you want to love him honourably and trust in him and have an awe and a reverence for him, a respect for his power, his majesty and his love and his justice and so on and so on and so on and so on. That is why you know, many times you may hear that, uh, I don't know Pastor Graham does it, I know other people do it, I certainly do it, is that when I pray, 
you know, many times I'll be praying back the scriptures. I'll pray these things back to God. Why? Because it is what he has already said. It is, you know, that is how I worship him. I pray back to him the things that he has already written and things that he has already said. And so we see that it is the fear of God. It is the fear. Now what is this fear? It is clean. It's clean. It's without blemish. Same kind of concept he's talking about with pure. It's clean and it is perfect. Another argument for inerrancy. There is no error in it. It is utterly truthful. And so we can have confidence in it. And now what does it do? It is, it is righteous altogether which is a really good thing for us as Christians because if the word is righteous altogether, what is it able to make us? Righteous altogether. See how that works? The scripture is able to, through us having the fear of the Lord, is able to make us righteous altogether. It can grow you in those attributes which you want. I know full well because I'm in the same boat that there are plenty of times where you, the Christian, just want sin to just stop. You just wish that sin was just out of your life. You wish you were more joyful. You wish you were more patient. You wish you were more kind, loving, gentle, etc., etc., etc. Have trust in the word that through reading it and knowing it and through praying to the God of the word, you can become righteous altogether because he has promised you that as well. That is the blessed hope that we have. We have the assurance and the promise that Christ will return to judge all the world and at the same time to raise us from the dead into glory. If we didn't have that, then what are we doing here? Wasting our time. We will have that promise and we have that promise. And so we will be made righteous altogether if we trust and rely on this clean and pure word and finally in this part the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether the rules of the Lord are true and right righteous or sorry the rules of the Lord are true righteous altogether what I've realized is that I was actually just talking about righteousness and not enduring forever Um, and so I might talk about that there the rules of the Lord are true the rules the divine decrees God has ruled that he will judge all the earth but he has also ruled that those who are found righteous in him, those who are found in Christ, they will be promised and they will be given and they will be receive eternal life. They will receive eternal life because these are the decrees. A raindrop does not fall on this planet outside of the will of God. A flower in your back garden does not spring up outside of the authority and sovereignty of God. I'm not going to waste our time on sovereignty because that's way too big a topic. But God is sovereign. He has decreed and formulated his will, as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, before the foundation of the earth. That is why even you sitting here is not an accident. You sitting here, whilst you still made the responsible and cognitive decision to come here, It's still under the control and the sovereignty of God. And so that provides us with a mighty assurance that if God is sovereign, 
if he is sovereign, if he has made decrees that are true, then we know he has a plan and that that plan will be fulfilled. God will not abandon you. Why? Because he has decreed that he won't abandon you. Every good work that he begins, he will surely finish. And so you can have confidence in that example that he will remain with you always. You can have confidence that his rules, his decrees are good and they are true. Even just to say that, that the, the Bible is true. It is true. Every calamity or hardship that comes into your life as a Christian, even as a non-Christian, but as a Christian particularly, God works that for good. God does no evil to you. But every calamity or hardship or struggle that you're going through in life, he's bringing to an end for his glory. So that's why you can rejoice as David, as Job, as Jeremiah, as every other man their donkey in the Old Testament did. They rejoiced in hardships and sufferings and trials because the Lord has rules and they are true. He has made decrees and everything which he has willed, everything that comes under the banner of his sovereignty will come to pass. And so you can have blessed assurance and confidence in that. What does he say that we should do with this word? He says that it is more to be desired than gold and even much fine gold for it is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And this is where I shall be finishing. He says it is more to be desired than gold, even more fine gold. This is more valuable than one of the most precious metals on our planet. You should desire this more than all the gold that Solomon had. And Solomon was receiving $3 billion, or what would be nowadays, $3 billion worth of gold a year. A year. And the word is more desirable than that. He then compares it to what was then a, a, a mighty luxury item, honey, which you might think, oh, honey, I just put that on my wheat picks. Not back then, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't put any wheat picks back then. He says that the word is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He says that in keeping the commands of the Lord, there is great reward. Now, obviously, in our own sinful nature, we don't do that. But through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we are then taught and transformed, as we looked at earlier, so that we then can, albeit not all the time, increasingly keep the commands of the Lord. Until one day when we die and we are judged, we will be found sinlessly perfect. We will be found righteous altogether. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It has been registered to our account. Our sinful account was wiped clean. And rather now Christ's righteousness rests in our place. And so there will be reward not because of the work we've done. I can guarantee you we're not because of the work we've done. You, the Christian, will be saved because of the work that Christ has done on your behalf. He lived a sinlessly perfect life on your behalf. He took upon himself the punishment and the wrath of God on your behalf. And he then died on your behalf. Only to then rise in glorious life 
all on your behalf. On your behalf. And so there will be reward. Moving forward, he then says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is the the same concept he's talking about here. The word teaches you right from wrong, as many of you know, and in conjunction with your conscience. And at the same time, David's cry to God here is that he would keep him back from presumptuous sins, that they wouldn't have dominion over him. And the word and the work of the Spirit through the word will make sure that sin does not have dominion over you. If you find yourself lingering and tarrying away from the word, I can tell you from experience and from seeing it in people, sin will begin to creep in and it will begin to take a grasp and a deadly grasp at that upon you. So if we abide in the word, and as Paul said in Colossians 3.16, if we let the word of Christ richly dwell in us, such sins will not have dominion over you because the same power that was in Christ is now in you. And so do not fear that sin will have dominion over you if you remain in his word. And finally, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is his concluding prayer. He's touching upon, believe it or not, Joshua 1.8. Or it certainly seems that way. Upon Joshua 1.8, where Joshua 1.8 begins in this very similar fashion. He begins by saying, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make, sorry, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. You can see the, the, the similarity there when David's saying, Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And I pray that that would be your prayer. May that be your prayer that his word, and the, would, sorry, would the words of, of your mouth and the meditations of your heart be acceptable in his sight? Why? Because what is acceptable in his sight? What words and what meditations, or in other words, what thoughts are acceptable in his sight? Words and thoughts that are biblical. Biblical. That are true. That are true. So would you close me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, we pray as the psalmist and the King David once prayed, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Lord, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us in the truth, for thy word is truth. May we understand and believe and hold firm to wholeheartedly the inerrancy of your word. May we rest upon it May we find ourselves in it and Lord, may we see you through it. Father, I pray that as the world condemns this word and as the world rebukes and mocks and scoffs and scorns this word, I pray that we may stand firm and fast upon it. I pray that we may not seek uh, you or or growth or, 
or, or what we need for Christian living in anything but your word. May we not seek it in entertainment. May we not seek it in the vain and fleeting things of the world. May we not seek it in so-called spiritual and life gurus and, and, and anyone else who wants to claim to receive these private, secret, additional revelations. Lord, I pray that we may rest wholeheartedly upon your word. May you sanctify us in the truth, for thy word is truth. May we say that all the days of our lives. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's people said, Amen.